Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. This ministry desires to help people know and live for Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And now, today's message. Well, good morning once again. My name is Chaplain Dan Braswell. Welcome to our service today. If you have your Bible, I hope that you do. I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, as we look at this subject, how to live with the reality of the majesty of God. How to live with the reality of the majesty of God. This is our third week in our Psalms series, songs that we still need to sing. And by the way, if you go to our Facebook page, you can look up last week's sermon by Jeremiah Verdon, who preached an awesome sermon out of Psalm 73, sharing some some challenges and, and grief in his own life and how the Lord brought him through. If you know anybody who's struggling in that area, send them that message. What a powerful, I'm, I'm still thinking about it, and it's a week later. So check that out. Today we're going to look at Psalm chapter 8, which is going to have a familiar phrase to you uh, in it. Earlier in the service, I had Aiden read out of Psalm 148. Psalm 148 to Psalm 150 is this exuberant praise to the Lord, and we're going to see some of that today. But we're also, I hope, with the psalmist, are going to answer the question, so what? Like, God is so great, God is so good. Well, okay, what, is that? what does that mean for you, and what does that mean for me? I hope and pray that we see today that it means everything, that it is very much what we would say is a game changer. Because people, by, by default, are going to worship and devote themselves to something. Augustine, from a long time ago, said it this way. You have, talking about the Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our souls are restless until they find rest in you. Augustine argues, as the scriptures argue, that we're going to find our most satisfaction in, in knowing God, specifically knowing God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But history tells us, if you look through all of history, you quickly discover that human beings are incurably religious and incurably worshiping creatures. They'll find something to worship, even if it is the wrong thing. Hopefully, as we look at Psalm chapter 8 today, it teaches us to worship the right God, but also how to live with the reality of this God who is so great and who is so majestic. Keep your Bibles open to Psalm 8. We'll look at a couple of other verses uh, as well and follow along. I want to read this passage to you right now in Psalm chapter 8, verse number 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, 
and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. It starts just, it ends just like it started, verse number nine. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. What a powerful passage. I believe as we look at this, we're going to see three ways you and I can live with the reality of of the majesty of God. And the first is this, point number one. Begin, Begin and end with the majestic God who acts. Begin and end with the majestic God who acts. Notice how it says it in verse one and verse nine. Oh, Lord, our Lord. But I want you to look at it carefully. Notice with me, many of your translations, English translations, which I'm sure 90-something percent of you are looking at an English translation, I would guess. You notice it says, oh, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Nod at me if you notice that. But did you notice the next Lord is just one capital? Capital L, then little case, O-R-D. Does that, are y'all tracking? Do y'all see that? That's not a typo. It's not a, well, sometimes I'll capitalize it, sometimes I won't. There's a reason behind that. When you, when you, when you dig into what it's saying, the, the all caps, that's the name of God. That's, that's, uh, that it's, it's, it, it derives from the Hebrew, from the to be ber- verb. It, it plays off of when, remember when Moses asked God, well, who do I tell Pharaoh that sent me? Remember what he said, I am that I am. It's, it's the Greek, it's, excuse me, it's the Hebrew for, for Yahweh. Or some English translations say Jehovah. That is the name of God. That is that is who he is very specifically. He is the always existing one. That's why it's the to be, the to be verb. That's why God told Moses, I am that I am. The psalmist is specifically talking to someone by name. The very name that God said was his name. Just like when you introduce yourself, what do you say? I know what I say. I say, my name's Dan Brazel. That's my name. That's who I am. The psalmist is specifically talking to a very specific God who has always been, always was, and always will be. Now, that's the all caps Lord. Oh, Lord, our Lord is the word that you could sort of translate Adonai. You could could say, oh, Lord, our Adonai. You could say, oh, Lord, our sovereign one. The the second Lord is describing to us something about who this specific named God is. He is the Lord, the always existing one. That is, in fact, his name. But he also is one to be worshipped. He is a sovereign. He is Lord in the truest sense of like he is in control of things. That is very important for you and for me to understand because As you know, there are some people who like to start a sentence like this. I like to think of God as fill in the blank. The atheist may say there is no God, so I'm going to focus on somebody else. According to this psalmist, that's not an option because there is an always existing one who is the sovereign. So you you can't go there and be in keeping with what God teaches about himself in the Bible. There's those who say, I worship creation and all that creation is. You can't do that. There's a specific God. You could say, well, there's a, there's a God, but he's not really able to, to do anything. He's, he's, um, he's in heaven, but he's, he's not really active in our life. He, he's doing the best that he can. No, the psalmist says, oh, Yahweh, our sovereign one. By the way, have you ever thought about this? We call God Lord all the time. When we disobey God, think about it. You know what we're saying to God? No, comma, Lord. Think about that. 
No, comma, one who's in control of all things, who we must obey. No, comma, Lord. That's what we do. Some people think of God as this divine force. Like a, uh, you'd say, pantheism is like God is in everything. Panentheism, we won't go into a lot of detail, but it's like God's sort of this force that's in everything. No, it's a specific God. Yahweh, our Adonai. This always existing one who is our sovereign. Polytheism. You can pick whatever God you'd like to worship. You can, you, can, you can say, well, I think God is this person, or I think God is that person. Try that with your spouse. Oh, random wife, today my random wife will be this, this lady. Tomorrow my random wife, Cheryl's not here today, but good night. I can promise you that will not work. But when we say, oh, you can just worship whatever you want, that's essentially what we're doing. But the psalmist says there is one God. Thank you. Amen. But also there's other ways that, that, we, that, we, that we misunderstand who God is. We like to, I like to think of God as a grandfather. I, in fact, I know it's hard to believe because I look so young. I'm a grandfather. Did you know that? I'm a grandfather. Grandfathers typically aren't harsh on kids. I remember when my kids were doing stuff bad at home, the same dad who would have just rung me up is like, oh, it's okay. Well, we like to think of God as a grandfather, like, oh, he just kind of lets people do whatever. And if you're a grandparent, you know, love your grandkids and do all that good stuff. But, but no, there's a specific God that we worship. I can't help but think about that great theologian, Ricky Bobby. If you remember the movie Talladega Nights, do you remember specifically one of Ricky Bobby's prayers to, to baby Jesus? In case you forgot, I pulled it up. I'll quote it to you. As, as Ricky Bobby prayed for his pizza and his Taco Bell, he said, Dear six pound, excuse me, dear eight pound, six ounce newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, but still omnipotent with your golden diapers. Ricky Bobby liked to think of Jesus as a little eight pound, six ounce. That's who I like to pray to, eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. But as if you've heard people preach at Christmas, guess what? Jesus didn't stay eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. The point is this. We begin and end with the majestic God who acts. We're talking about a very specific God. And that's important for you and for me because we live in a world where people try to say, I can just do whatever I want. I can believe whatever I want. But according to the Bible, there's a very specific God, our Lord and Savior. And he had a son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again. And the only way to have a right relationship with this God we're talking about is through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at back at verse number three with me. I like this. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you set in place. This, this God is majestic. He's powerful, not just because of who he is, but because of, because of what he does. Notice, I kept reading this. The psalmist is saying that the work of your fingers made the moons and the stars which you have set in place. My modern day translation is almost like the psalmist is saying God created the moons and the stars with his little finger. Today we might say not even flexing. My, my, my religious affairs NCO, my teammate Brandon Jordan, if he hears this he'll be embarrassed, but, but it's okay. He's, he's muscular. He's, he's got the guns. Uh, kind of the opposite of my arm. He, he's got the guns. And we were, out, we were out at one of these org days and he had a tank top on and he was throwing a ball. And one of the soldiers said, oh, Sergeant Jordan, he's, he must have he must have did some curls before he came out here. And I said, nope, not even flexing. That's just who he is. That's just what is, he's got the guns. Well, that's what I think of when I say it's, it's interesting how the psalmist says with God's, you think of the moon and stars, the biggest thing the psalmist could have possibly thought of in the sky. He says, well, God did that with his fingers. Not even flexing. 
This God is this God is majestic. I want to turn to a couple of passages. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just jot them down. I'm going to give you a couple of passages that talk about how majestic this God is. He's, he's the God of the universe, but there's some things that he has done to demonstrate his majesty. Look at Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, if you want to turn there or make a note. This is in what we call the Song of Moses, where he says something about how, how this God is majestic in his victories. He says he was majestic in power, and he says, Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. This majestic God is in control of all things, and Moses gives praise to God because God gave him victory. Remember all the Exodus stories? The uh, Israelites being led out of Egypt and the waters parting and all that miraculous uh, things that God did. That's Moses saying that he is majestic in his, in his victories. The battle belongs to the Lord. He's also majestic in his judgments. If you look at Psalm 76, Psalm 76, verses 4 through 6, I will read that to you. God's, God's majestic because he, he, he fights our battles, which we're going to sing about, I think, today. But he's also majestic in his, in his judgments. The Bible says in Psalm 76, verse 4, You are radiant with light, more majestic than mountains with rich game. The valiant lie plundered. Uh, they sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. Verse 6, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. He's majestic in his judgment. Uh, Isaiah 42, 21, he's majestic in his law. The prophet says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 21, he says this, it pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. God is very much a God of love who loves you and, and loves me. And we're going to see that in a minute. But he's also a God who is majestic in his law. God has given us his law, his expectations. He's given us the Bible that, that teaches us how to live out our godliness. And then he's also majestic in his creation. Majestic in his creation. I won't give you all the verses, but you've already seen one in Psalm chapter 8. If you turn all through the Psalms, I'll give you another one. Psalm chapter 9 mentions it. Psalm chapter 93 mentions it. If you want to turn there later. He, it says he's mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord is high and, and mighty. This, this God is majestic. Uh, one of the classic uh, readings that I encourage you can find it for free on the Internet is Charles Spurgeon's Treasury of David. Listen to what he said about the majesty of God. He said this, Descend to the lowest depths of the ocean where the water sleeps undisturbed and the sand is motionless in unbroken quiet. The glory of the Lord is there, revealing its excellence in the silent palace of the sea. Bar the wings of the morning and fly to the farthest parts of the sea. God is there. Fly to the highest heaven and God is praised in everlasting song. Dive to the deepest hell and God is justified in terrible vengeance. Everywhere and in every place God dwells. This God is majestic. If you go back to look at verse number 2 in Psalm 8, about still talking about this idea of majesty. It says that out of the, in back in back in Psalm chapter eight, back to our original text in verse two, 
Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and avenger. If you recall the story where Jesus enters Jerusalem, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 21. The religious authorities, they, they come to Jesus and they say this. They say, do you hear what these people are saying and singing? Some of the parents had taken their children and had put the palm branches on the roadway. Do you remember that story? And they'd celebrated the coming and they were singing what? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious authorities said, you know, we need to stop this. But then Jesus, what does he say? He says, have you not ever read the Bible? And he quotes this verse, Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. That is exactly what the psalmist is talking about. Like even infants understand the majesty of God. Out of the mouth of babes you pour forth praise. This God is, is majestic. He's the God who acts. He's the God who created. He's the God who empowers. And he's the God who gives victory. And you see it throughout the Bible. Nothing else makes sense if we don't understand who this God is. He is this one whose name is majestic in all the earth. This God who has revealed himself to us through scripture and through the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have his Holy Spirit in us. And we start off by worshiping this God who is majestic and who acts. Point number two is this. Point number two is worship the God who is mindful of you. I'm borrowing the language right out of the passage there in, in, in verse number four. What is man that you are, are mindful of him, the son of man uh, that you care for him? You've made him lower than the heavenly beings. Some translations say lower than the angels and, and crowned him, he says, with glory and honor. Listen, you have value. Even in a world that many times is still deciding on who has value and who has more value, all that goes out the window when you see the truth of this passage is that every single person on this earth has value because God has, has said it to be that way. That is an incredibly important point for us as Christians. If you're here today and you're one of these people who have gotten to the point where you feel like you don't have value, the psalmist just throws all that out and says, no, what is man that you are mindful of him? God loves you. God is very much mindful of you, which is an important truth. I hope that's something that we have in our hearts that helps us through our, through our lives, that we teach to our children in this world where people are deciding who has value many times. No, it's been settled. You have value because God has said that you have value. You're made in the image of God. I hope that we understand from this passage, one of the so what's is that you and I cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating his supreme creation, which would be other human beings, with contempt, whoever they might be. Let me ask you if you have a Bible, I want you to turn somewhere because I want you to see this. This is all the way to the back of the New Testament. It is 1 John chapter 3. I want to read something to you and I want you to see it. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 16, a lot of people know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but this is 1 John 3.16. Look at what he says. And this all has to do with the idea that God is mindful of you. Look at this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. 
Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and with truth. I want to show you one more place in 1 John. Flip over to the next chapter, 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 19 and through 21. Again, this same idea, God is mindful of us, and this is the so what. 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. There it is. God's mindful of you. He loves you. Verse 20, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Loving other people. Why? Because they have value. You can turn back to Psalm chapter 8 as we think about this idea of what, what First John shared with us and what the psalmist is saying. This idea of, having, of everyone having value. What that means is we can't mistreat the elderly and glorify the majesty of God. We can't abuse children and glorify the majesty of God. We cannot dismember the unborn and glorify the majesty of God. We cannot murder people because we disagree with them and glorify the majesty of God. We cannot treat human pregnancy like a disease and glorify the majesty of God. But it goes, it goes on and on. We cannot treat people in an unkind way and glorify the majesty of God. Paul said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. We can't have malice in our hearts towards other people. We cannot be gossipers of other people. At least we can't do it and glorify the majesty of God. You and I cannot glorify the majesty of God while treating anyone else on this planet with contempt or hatred. Now, we said God's a God of laws. God's a God who's given us standards. It does not mean that we agree with everything every single human being on this earth does. Can I be honest with you? I don't agree with everything I've done. After I do it, I go, good night. Why did I do that? That was terrible. I don't even agree with my own stuff. <laughs> we all fit that bill. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Romans 3.23 applies to all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it does not mean that you have to agree with everything that goes on in this world. But what it does mean is that you and I always treat every single person as if they are made in the image of God. I wonder if we did that, I wonder if it would help, help point people to the Lord even greater than some of our, 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 our judgmental meanness that comes out sometimes. Sometimes I read things on social media and I'm like, that person would never say that in public, but they just go crazy on social media. Every single person on this planet has dignity and worth. And is made in the image of God. Let's live accordingly and let's keep that in mind. How do we know all people have value? Because the Bible has told us so. We're all made in God's image. He loves us. Point number three is this. Take on the responsibility of who you are and act accordingly in this world. Notice the progression of the psalm. He begins and ends with the majesty of God. He doesn't want you to forget who God is and what he's done. 
He also says you have value. And now the so what is, he is calling us. We're seeing the example that you and I are to take responsibility in this world. Let's go back and look at verses 6 through 8. I, want you, I didn't want you to gloss over this. There's a lot packed in this verse. And there's a powerful, powerful principle about taking responsibility. After he establishes that, that, that this man, this one that God created, has value and dignity and worth because he's made the image of God, he starts in verse 6 and he says this about the person. He says, you have given him dominion. Carries the idea of rule. Over what? Over the works of your hands. That Whose hands? God's hands. God has given people the responsibility to have dominion in this world. And then he, talk, he gives some examples. He put all things under his feet. Sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, the birds, the fish. And, and that's, his, that's his illustration. We take responsibility of who we are and act accordingly in this world. God has called us to be a part of, of what he's doing uh, in this world. Because we possess dignity, we're made in the image of God. He's made us in such a way that we might know him. And he's made us for a relationship with himself. Because of that, he calls us to this work of dominion. There's an important passage of scripture in Genesis that I want to show you. Some people call this the, the divine mandate. Go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Or I can simply read it to you or make it, maybe make a note in, in your notes there. Genesis 1, 28, very much in keeping with Psalm chapter 8. It says this, when God created man, he blessed him and said, be fruitful, multiply, that is raise families, right? Fill the earth and subdue it, carries the idea of dominion, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. This idea of dominion, this idea of like responsibility. Go back to Psalm chapter 8 and look at verse 6. Look how he words this. He says, dominion over the works of your hands, but then he says he's put all things under his feet. All things under his feet is a symbolic picture that, that would have been common in the ancient Near East to demonstrate superiority over a defeated foe. A king would stand and he would put his foot on the neck of his enemy lying on the ground at his feet. The king is exalted. What is that? The idea is the, is the king rules. Don't go stick your foot on somebody's neck. That's not what I'm saying. However, the principle is that, is that we're, we're, we have responsibility in this, in this world. We have a responsibility to, to sub, subdue the earth and, and, be, a, and be a blessing uh, in it. When you think about Genesis and you think about the Garden of Eden, I want you to follow me on this. In Genesis, the story of creation, the story of man subduing the, the garden, you have the entire story of the Bible, if you think about it, laid out in, in a microcosm. What was Eden? Eden was the Garden of Eden was where God dwelt with his people. What did it say happened? God made man, God made, God made woman, and they walked with God in the cool of the day. The idea was that, was that people were designed by God to work in the garden and to demonstrate the majesty and glory of God through their responsibility of taking care of it. There was dignity in their work. They had worth because they were made in God's image and God called them to be a part of what he was doing. He, wants, he wanted them to fill the garden with his glory. God wants you and God wants me to fill this earth with his glory. Adam was assigned and Eve was assigned to work. This is what we mean 
when we talk about the idea of dominion. Now, I believe there's an attack, a satanic attack, on the concept of dominion in our world today. And I think the principles of this passage apply to men and women, but let me say something about men in general right now. I believe there's an, a satanic attack on biblical masculinity. Let me read some things to you. This, is, this astounded me as I studied. The American Psychological Association in 2019 said this about masculinity. Traditional masculinity, marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression, is on the whole harmful. They offer, so the article says, the concept of masculinity is harmful, which is today many never use the word masculinity without saying what? Toxic masculinity. Fragile masculinity. Well, we're not saying anywhere in the Bible that it says to, for masculinity to be negative because what's the Bible say? Everybody has inherent worth and dignity. What I am saying is this. This idea of dominion, God is calling men and God is calling women for good and to rule, to have dominion over things in life. A biblical man will bring blessing and good to those around him. Very much so. But I believe that our world today, I believe our ultimate enemy, Satan, I think he's still employing the same tactic that he used in the Garden of Eden. Remember when, remember when the woman ate the, ate, the, uh, ate, the, ate the fruit and then it says, the Bible specifically says, the husband who was with her? When I read it, you get the picture that Adam's standing there the whole time that the conversations go. And he is abdicating his responsibility to, to take care of his family and to protect his family. I believe it still happens today. And I believe Satan wants to keep our men specifically passive. Don't be dominant. Dominant's bad. Don't, don't be active. Active's bad. So as I was reading all this, I was thinking about the scriptures as a whole. In the garden, God dwelt with people. We all know the story. Adam sinned. Eve sinned. They got banished from the garden. When you read through the Old Testament and you get to Exodus and you get to Leviticus and all those times, God dwelt in this thing called the tabernacle that moved. Remember that? When you keep reading in the Bible, when Solomon comes along, Solomon builds a temple. The temple was the place where God dwelt. God has always been calling people to be his representatives on earth, and, that, and the temple was where, where God would dwell. In the New Testament, after Christ came, he died on the cross, he rose again, he ascended into heaven. We read things like this in the New Testament, where Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We don't have a temple on earth where God dwells now. Now the temple of God on earth is you and I as the Holy Spirit lives in us and we live out our life for Christ on this earth. God is calling you and God is calling me to be a part of that temple. The Bible even ends with a temple, if you read in Revelation, the new Jerusalem coming down. That is the ultimate goal of, of history, is that God will be magnified and glorified, and we will be a part of that as we're his representation on this earth. But this idea of masculinity today, listen to this. Fewer and fewer of our young men in America have jobs. Listen to this. In 2015... 25% of the men between 21 and 30 had no work to speak of. I want you to wrap your mind around that. In America, 25% of the men, 21 to 30, had no real job. 
living habits, work, education. Why am I saying all this? What has God called us to be? Subduers, dominion, act. Be a part of what God's doing in the world. In America today, education-wise, listen to this. Boys earn an overwhelming number of the D's and the F's in school. It, by eighth grade, 20% of boys in America earn proficiency in reading. By the way, also statistically, there are fewer men going to college now than there were 10 years ago. So think about that with me. What is going on? What are the statistics saying that people are doing ages 21 to 30 who aren't working and who aren't in college? I'm glad you asked me. Here's what they say. This guy named Mark Aguilar wrote an article called Leisure Luxuries and Labor Supply of Young Men. He says the average difference is their leisure time. He said the category of men who aren't in school and aren't work spend an average of eight hours a day on leisure, and the vast amount of that time is screen time of two categories, either video games or pornography. No surprise, probably, that this group of non-working adult men are facing depression and higher rates of suicide. Listen to this about pornography in America. 43%, and I got this from a, from a book by Mark Regnerus, a, a recent study, 43% of American men report watching pornography in the last week. The average doesn't really differentiate that much between married men and unmarried men. The researcher believes that pornography is replacing the idea of being in a committed relationship. Relationships are difficult, he says. Porn is easy, cheap, and safe. And I believe Satan uses these things to keep our young men entertained and under control. Now, I don't say all that simply just to throw out it's easy for Christians many times to go, oh, the, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. Let's just complain about it. That's not what I'm doing right now. What I'm doing is this. God is calling us to exercise authority in this world in the sense of be men and women of action. Uh, be men and women who are responsible. That leisure stuff, wasting our time, that's easy. But what would it look like? Let me, let me be encouraging, I hope. What would it look like if Christian men and women took this responsibility seriously and exercised godly, responsible dominion in the world around us? What would it look like in our chapel if our single soldier said, no, that, that stuff, this leisure, this time waster, that's sinful, that's not what my life's going to be about. I'm going to every day wake up with the realization that I'm made in the image of God and I'm called by God to serve him. What would it look like this week if we all, if single soldiers did that? How awesome would that be? Amen. What would it look like if, if, if moms and dads took this to heart, took this concept to heart and said, I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to act accordingly. This is a day that the Majest, the majestic God of the universe has given me and he is calling me to be a part of what he's doing in this world and he's calling me to raise my children in the same way. What would that look like this week if we chose to do that? What could God do with men and women in our congregation who say they're going to live with the knowledge that God has invited or rather that God has commanded you to join him in the dominion of this world, to be his temple in this world? To be his representation. If we took up this call, what would that look like today? Let me say this and then we're going to pray. To do this, friends, we need each other. We can't, we can't do it alone. For single soldiers, that means find Christian friends that we spend time with. That we hold each other accountable. 
that we say, no, we want to live lives of discipline. We want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we want to make our lives count for Him. That's what we want to do. Have those friends around you who will be a blessing to you, who will help build you up like iron sharpening iron. For ladies who are about to start PWC, it is, it is my prayer that as, you, as, you, as you're a blessing to each other, as you serve each other, as you help each other out with your kids and learn the Bible together, that, it, that you grow and you know that you have your sister to your left and to your right who also loves you and also will build you up as you try to be a representation of God in this world. For you families out there, who several of you told me stories about how it's, it's hard to raise kids. Yep, it's hard to raise kids. May moms and dads, husbands and wives love each other and realize each, each other is a great blessing in their life. And the more your life focuses on God, may it also focus closer to each other. What would it look like if moms and dads just simply said, I am going to understand that we're made the image of God and we're his representation in this world. And God has given us this great gift of family. What a difference God could do with that. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that God loves you and he loves me because he's made us in his image. And that God who is so majestic is calling you and he's calling me to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Let's do that together. I invite you to stand and let's pray as we get ready to sing together. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We can't say it enough. God, I pray for your people today. I pray that this truth would sink home in our hearts. God, I pray that you would protect us from the enemy's lies that say passivity is okay, from the enemy's lies that say I'm not really supposed to do anything. I'm just supposed to live for myself, and that's okay. God, uh, protect us from that mentality, God, and help us to see who we are as sons and daughters of the King. God, we thank you for the salvation you give us through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray as your people that we would certainly be the temple of God that is your representation on this earth. And may others around us who are lost and don't know Jesus Christ as Savior see us in God and glorify you. May we glorify you in such a way that it draws other people to you. And they too become part of the family of God. God, for these single soldiers, for these families, God, I, I pray and I pray with all my chaplain brothers, we all just earnestly pray together, God, that, that you, will, you will raise up men and women and boys and girls who, who love you and who want to serve you in this world. God, I pray that, that as, as, as we're all living out this faith, that you would keep us accountable and responsible. But God, help us to encourage one another along the way. May none of us think that we're alone in this, in this battle, God, but you fight the battle for us. And God, we have one another too. May we draw strength from that. Bless us as we sing now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.